people are searching for God and they are searching for God online. Like that's our age. If you just focus on your church, your ministry, that will be a very limiting experience. Even though engaging globally is difficult, I think it's worth the effort for every church leader. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I'm your host, Jason Watson, and in today's episode of the podcast, we sit down with Attila Nyari. Attila shares from his journey of planting and pastoring a healthy church in Budapest, Hungary, building a digital ministry which reaches and evangelizes Hungarians, and from his experience of being connected to and serving a global church movement. I thoroughly enjoyed my time learning from Attila, and I'm confident that today's conversation will add value to your life and ministry. Let's dive into my interview with Attila Nyari. Attila, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Jason. And so good to do this in person. Thank you for being willing to be here. We are currently at the Africa Gathering, which has been really exciting to be a part of. And it's really great to sit down with you. Attila, you have quite a diverse track record in terms of ministry, but I would like us to start at the beginning of your whole journey. Before you went into ministry, you were working in the corporate industry. Could you share with us your journey within the corporate space and what inspired you to move beyond that into working in ministry? Right. So I think many people might have a similar start that when you're young, you don't really know what you want to do, right? So I wasn't sure, but I ended up in a school for public relations and, and media and all of that. And I was working in different communications agencies and then in a bank uh, in, within my profession in communications. So I wasn't really planning on going into ministry at all. <laughs> that, was, that happened kind of accidentally, naturally, how the Lord led. I, I also enjoyed working in the, in the business sector, learned so much about how leadership is done, how organizations work. But I just had an ongoing sense of, is this what we are working for? Like, is this what we use our working hours for? In my case, I was working on projects that I wasn't particularly interested in. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear from you. What leadership lessons or life skills did you learn in the corporate space, in the banking industry, that you have found have translated really well in, in the ministry space? You are serving in the Lausanne movement. You've been a local church planter in Hungary, which we're going to get to. What skills and experiences have translated well in equipping you to do your ministry well? And what habits have you had to unlearn? What a great question. So I have a friend who always keeps coming back to this idea that the church for hundreds and frankly thousands of years was the central point where knowledge about leadership was gathered. And then kind of how that somehow went over to the corporate world. And now we are playing catch up in the church in a sense. So I think uh, what I really liked about uh, leadership in the corporate world is just their determination to really set clear goals and then really plan, strategize around it and then make everything in their power to reach that goal. So like that goal orientation is something that, that I picked up and that's not always the case in ministry world, let's put it that way. Have there been any habits or ways of leading others or the ways of thinking that you've had to unlearn from the corporate space as you've moved into the ministry space? Yeah, you know, this is so interesting because what I'm about to say is I think it should work that way everywhere. Like people are seen as humans. Mm -hmm. But of course, in the corporate world, the primary goal is to please the owner or the stakeholders or whatever. And the worker is, is basically a tool for accomplishing that. So that was really something I had to unlearn to look at people that way 
and to even as I was later leading in a church setting, you know, to see our volunteers first and foremost as people, mm. precious in God's eyes, thinking about how they could flourish in life and ministry, not just how are they contributing to my bottom line. Yeah, because in church, we can have a bottom line. Whatever our mission or vision can be as a church, that can become our end goal and humans can and our volunteers can become almost like a stepping stone to achieve that. And so I think that's, that is a challenge that we can all resonate with, whether it's church ministry or missions organizations. To, yeah. Yeah. yeah, one of my pastors actually said this, that are you using the ministry to build up the people or are you using people wow. to build up your ministry? And I had that in my mind ever since. I think that's just a cool way of saying it. I, I regret it wasn't me coming up with that's it. That's so good. That's so good. Kudos to him. So you transitioned from the corporate space and you chose to plant a church. No, is that not, <laughs> not the way it happened? Or could you share the story of how you ended up becoming a church planter in Hungary? So why I'm laughing is that I always share the story that I'm an accidental church planter. What my passion was is because I come from a very fundamentalist uh, church background. Mm -hmm. To me, realizing what the message of scripture actually is and like the basics of the evangelical faith, so to say, like the finished work of Christ on the cross, th those are like revolutionary for me. So really my passion was helping people discover those freeing truths in scripture. So I was leading different Bible study groups next to my career in, in business. Eventually, one of the Bible study groups grew into like maybe around 30 people. So I realized we have a problem. So I went to this pastor of the downtown Calvary Chapel in Budapest and told him, I think there's a church forming here. You need to send the pastor. And then he asks a few more questions and he looks me in the eye and says, I think you're the pastor that God oh. is calling. <laughs> so that's how I ended up in ministry. I wasn't planning on becoming a, a pastor. Wow, so you had no training, you had no one behind you backing you? I didn't have any formal training. I did a lot of reading on my own. I attended um, Calvary Chapel's Bible College in, in Hungary uh, virtually, but that was at, at that point not even a certificate program. You know, it was just Bible school. So I picked up a lot of things on the go and listened to tons of sermons and took notes and all of that. But yeah, I wasn't professionally preparing for that. We have quite a large audience that are listening to this podcast from across the world. Could you paint us a picture of the religious landscape in Hungary? Perhaps it might have changed since you planted a church, but could you just share with our audience what the religious landscape looks like and what it was like to dive into that mission of actually taking that beyond a Bible study to becoming a church plant? So of course I'm biased. I love my country. That's good. And Hungary cannot really be understood without understanding that region of the world. So it's really a tiny country for those who might not be familiar. It's a country of about 10 million people. Hungarian is a language that's spoken by about 15 million people. That's the total number of Hungarian speakers in the world. The country was founded on Catholic foundations. Even our crown came from like the Pope. It was gifted by the Pope. And so Catholicism and then also Protestantism was really strong in Hungary and in Hungary's history. But then, as you can imagine, it became very nominal with the centuries. So even though today you go out to the streets and you talk to someone, they will say they are Christian, but it's largely nominal. And then we also had decades of communism and that really killed the faith in many. So especially my parents' generation, as so many people like reject the faith 
think it's irrational. And it's also like Hungary is that part of Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is known for you know, high suicide rates, alcoholism. So a lot of, lot of problems that people are facing. And it's, it, I think it really comes from that hopelessness of the whole communist era that we walked through as a, as a nation. And of course, that's like 30 years ago that that ended. But, you know, somehow, just as our personal traumas, like these national things also live on. So that was the context we started out in. And in your opinion, how does the gospel intersect with the hopelessness that you're speaking about? What does the word of God and the gospel answer for an Hungarian who might be far from the Lord and experiencing, you mentioned, high suicide rates, hopelessness? How does the gospel intersect with that? If you think about hopelessness, it's really when people think about hope generally in society, I think they say, like, I can see signs that point me to the conclusion that things will get better. But that's really not biblical hope, right? Mm -hmm. Biblical hope is I know a better future is coming, even though I don't see any sign of it. And how I experience Hungarian people is that they are really down to earth. So they consider this like a fairy tale, like, of course, yeah, hope. So maybe where I see the gospel getting into Hungary is from a different angle. And that's because we are a small nation uh, with a history that is so full of traumatic events. Mm. You know, even in the world wars and in different wars, we always had to side with somebody. And we typically sided with the wrong <laughs> side, not the winning side. So there is like ongoing sense of, oh, we are just little. We don't, we are not worth anything. It's almost like we are despising ourselves wow. as a people. And like when the gospel comes and actually says that God sees value in you, your life is worth something. You know, there is a future for you. I think that's when people, well, initially, I myself couldn't believe it. But I think, you know, you need to hear it a few times. You, you need to experience it by Christians living this out into your life. And then they start to realize, maybe I can start believing it a little, and then it grows. I would love to hear a little bit more of your church planting journey. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that there might be some aspiring church planters who are listening, or perhaps there are church planters that are already in, in it. What do you believe were some of the things that you did that helped your Bible study grow beyond a Bible study to become a healthy church? Right. How long has your church been running for? So we planted it eight years ago. Eight years ago. And what were the, if there were anything, key things that you did that helped you go beyond just planting to a church plant that survived? We actually asked people, like, why do you like this church? Why do you go here? And so I think the reality in Hungary is that we are standing on the shoulders of previous generations and like the mainline churches, the official big churches, but those churches tend to be limited by so many rules and liturgies they need to follow and, and all of that. And that's good. We can see the beauty in it. But one thing that I heard from people again and again is that, oh, I went to this church and I couldn't understand the preaching. Oh, I'm reading the Bible for 10 years. I've been reading it for 20 years and I've never understood this chapter. And so the movement that I became part of, and I mentioned Calvary Chapel before, really has a strong emphasis on preaching through the Bible in very simple terms. So it's almost like the cheeseburger of Christianity, you know? It's like, it's not the let's go down and study what the Greek says. There is value there, but you have to start at a different level where people are like, oh, 
for the first time I understand this story. And I think that was what really resonated with people is that as we were studying through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, really expository, you know, preaching and really helping people get into the story. And then the other thing is the delivery style. And what I mean by that is we make a real effort not to speak like, you know, churches. <laughs> like really, if anybody comes in randomly, have never been to a church, they should understand and, and the message should connect with their life. And I think that's what we've been finding that really resonated with people. And it's not just my church. It's generally, I think, the movement. And now a lot of other churches are popping up that try to speak in a down-to-earth way. As you've engaged with other church planters from across Europe and across the world, what do you think makes Hungary unique to other nations within Europe in terms of church planting? So maybe this is again a question where I would say, maybe it's not the country, but the region, is that in Hungary, generally, churches run on volunteers only. Like most of my pastor friends are either have a full-time job and then they lead the church next to it, or they are bivocational. Very few actually are on staff with the church. And then, you know, I only know one person in Hungary who is like a, a full-time worship leader. Worship leaders are all volunteers, musicians, all volunteers, every single person in every single ministry, kids ministry. So that makes it really, I think, also a leadership challenge. It's not like you have a core group who you can really hold accountable, but you're always at the mercy of, do they really have the time they said they would have? And it's not out of bad intention if they don't, it's just life happens. So that whole reality. So as I was looking at church planting materials, and so many of that is produced in the West, and so many good stuff is produced in the U.S. specifically, but we really had to work hard on contextualizing, adapting it, so that it's actually useful. Were there any moments in your ministry where you felt like you had failed? Or perhaps you, <laughs> you know, okay, this was, I made a big mistake here. And what lessons did you learn from that? So I think I made the most mistakes with people, relating to people. One area I would say is I'm personally a very task-oriented person and leader, which means I need to work very hard to make sure people feel seen and appreciated and valued. And that doesn't come across when I preach. So people come and think I'm friendly. <laughs> then they join my team. I'm no, just kidding. I, I try to be friendly with my team as well. But really, I think I was very demanding at times. I can also reflect on actually giving trust too soon and not really seeing what, where a person really fits in. I made some really bad mistakes in terms of who came on the team and in what role, because they ended up not thriving, the team ended up not thriving, I ended up venting to my wife after every Sunday. So people questions are really something that, that was a difficulty. I would love also to hear a success story. <laughs> <laughs> so as you think back over your church planting journey, are there one or two stories that just stand out to you that make you look back and think, okay, it was all worth it? Yes, uh, many, 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 many. Which, which should I pick? So one time we had a lady in the church, a sister who she grew up in church, but left it all behind. But then she started attending and she came to faith. I got to baptize her and her husband was not a believer, but they invited over uh, for dinner. So we had a conversation and 
there was the you know the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, so so many different religious books. So I realized he's a seeker. But then he came to one event where we went canoeing with the church. It was like a leisurely activity. That was the first time that he actually met us. That was even before the dinner. I'm, I'm messing up the storyline. So he came to this thing, and that was the first part where he saw that Christians can be normal. That's his words. <laughs> and then he gave a chance. He came to church, came to faith. I, I remember the, the evening when that happened. That, that's why I get emotional here. And I got to baptize him, and then he became a leader in the church. Like, really, I saw his life. So that doesn't really happen often, I think. You, you get to see a, a portion of that journey. You know, maybe you sow the seed. Maybe you bring someone to faith. Maybe you disciple somebody or maybe you do leadership development. But with, with him, I got to see the whole process. And just to see him really come to thrive in life and ministry was really, really meaningful. Those kind of moments are just beautiful. And I think that often they are gifts from God in many ways to us as ministers. And just even for those listening, I think it's encouraging to hear, okay, there are these stories and to reflect back and to remind yourself, okay, God is using me and he continues to use me. I loved how you mentioned sometimes we sow and sometimes we reap. You have just come through a season of transitioning your church over to new leadership. Right. And um, I would love to hear the backstory to that. What led you to a point of deciding and realizing now is the time for me to hand over my church. You're still very young. I think a lot of leaders face that question much later in their journey, but I would love to hear what was your thought process behind it and what led you to the point of saying, okay, now's the time for me to transition leadership. It wasn't an easy one. There are some pastors who have strong convictions about how they would like to design their life, like ministry life or the, the overall timeline of it. Some people will say, like, I want to stay in the same church all my life because that's how I can make a meaningful input. There are traditions where you change every seven years or whatever. For me, I didn't have a strong conviction. So I was just doing ministry without a long-term vision of how long I would be doing this. But then after some point, I can't describe this feeling in any other way that I walked into the church one day and I felt like this is not my church anymore. It's I'm not in my place, if you know what I mean. And I was like, what's wrong with me? Am I burning out? Do I have some issues? Am I not walking close to the Lord? Is there, you know, like attack from the spiritual realm? What is going on? So I talked to a lot of mentors and trusted friends also in the Lausanne movement. I, I mean, that's why the Lausanne family is so valuable. You get to talk to people outside of the, the system that you're serving in and you can share honestly and, and get real input. So I shared with them, and actually they said, you know, this might be a prompting of the Holy Spirit, that your time is up. So I prayed about it, I discerned it more, and yeah, I became convinced. I got some people come up to me with prophecies, they didn't know what they were talking about, mm -hmm. but I knew what they were talking wow. about, and also the Lord in my, my time with Him really gave me peace about it. So that's how I knew it was time mm -hmm. to transition. And talk us through the steps you took in order to transition. I think... There may be some leaders listening, they're realizing, they're getting the same sense that you're having of, okay, my time now is coming to an end. What steps did you take to transition? Right. And, and how, what have you seen work and what have you seen perhaps not work? So in that regard, I'm really thankful for many podcasts and leadership materials, books that talk about pastoral transition and also to my mentors because they were really influential in helping me navigate this. But I think 
with that input, it became a successful process, uh, which I'm happy about. So I had an assistant pastor working with me for, I think, five years. So when I came back to the church after a short sabbatical, where I discerned that, yes, this is the time to move on, I kept my eye open and asked the Lord to show me who is the next pastor I should invite. That's how it works in my tradition. So I prayed and, and the Holy Spirit really confirmed that it is him who needs to take it over. So I, I went to him and invited him to take over. Then he took about six months to pray about it. Because as I mentioned, this is a church culture which is volunteer-based. Like he had his full-time job. What does he do? So it, it's significant life decisions. But after six months, they, with his wife, they were really certain that this is what the Lord is calling them to. So we worked a lot together, just handing over. It was also a good exercise for me. For the first time, maybe I really had a clear picture of, okay, what is my role actually as a pastor? Outlining that, talking that through with him. And then I announced it to the church. And then there was a three-month period where I was still the pastor, but I was giving more and more space to him, deferring more and more decisions to him. So in the last month where I was there as a pastor, I was really just... That was just my title, but he was making all the decisions. And then the interesting thing is that so many people advised me against staying in that church. But because we didn't know the next thing yet, we still don't have it at this moment. And he was inviting us to like stay there. So with the whole family, we are still going to that church. That's beautiful. And how's your church adapted to you being there as a normal congregation member compared to being their leader and their pastor? You know, it's interesting. I think because it was a lengthy process, they had time to vent their thoughts and air their frustrations or, or sadness or whatever, process the emotions and had really hard conversations. <laughs> like these are people who have grown really close, really close. But I think they've coped well overall. And you know, the best part was when somebody came up to me and, and said, you know, maybe I was focusing too much on you. Wow, that's good. And maybe that's why the Lord is moving you. Mm. And I think that's what many in the church maybe don't verbalize, but you know, a church can become pastor centric. And it's good to show in practice that this is not about us ministers. This is about the Lord Jesus building his church. And we are just, you know, as, as Paul says, we are just workers. I love that you mentioned that those within the congregation can look to you and the church can become pastor-centered. I think as pastors, you can also become pastor-centered. Oh, your, yeah. your pastoral title becomes entrenched in your identity. And I would love to hear how you have dealt with handing over that mantle of pastoral leadership. How have you dealt with the shift of being a pastor to not being a pastor? You know, that's still a question in my mind. Am I a pastor? Did I stop being one? I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting one. I think one aspect that really helped is that probably a year before I transitioned, I accidentally stumbled on this social media ministry that I now put more energy and time on. And I feel like pastoring, in my definition, is helping people develop in their walk with God, really build a friendship with God and walk with Him humbly every day. So in that sense, now I still feel like I'm pastoring people, but I do that online through different ways. Maybe it's not one 40-minute sermon each Sunday. Maybe it's, you know, five one-minute videos and then comments and chat messages. But I think that really helped that even though I don't know if I have a next assignment as a pastor of a local church or a local congregation, I don't feel like I've stopped 
helping people walk with God. That's beautiful. And I'd like us to move on to that because you have shifted into more of the digital space. Um, right now, we're looking at 60% of the global population is on the internet. Just over 58% of that is on social media. And you've mentioned twice that you've stumbled into <laughs> church planting and you stumbled into this digital ministry. It doesn't feel like you stumbled into anything. It, for me, it seems like you have a passion for God and you have a passion for people and God is leading you into new spaces consistently and you are being faithful, just reaching out and you have a passion for hungry. I would love for you just to share with our audience that journey of beginning a digital ministry. What have you done and what has worked and how do you do it? So really, yeah, it does feel like stumbling upon something, but then retrospectively, you see how the Lord's been in it all, right? So how that happened is I heard about TikTok. I heard about TikTok all the time from like the young people in the church and even my daughter. And I'm like, what is this platform? So I downloaded it, opened it, and I closed it. This was the first platform in my life that I felt too old for. Like, <laughs> what is going on? So I gave myself a 20-day challenge. I said, okay, I don't have much time, but every day when I drop my kids at school, I will just pull aside in the parking lot and just record a one-minute video and upload it and then uh, see what happens. Uh, at least I can say I tried. And in the 20 days, I got to, I started to have so many meaningful like chat conversations, also some people asking for phone conversations, people asking all kinds of questions about faith. I realized, oh, there is something on here. So I've been on this now for a year, and I can honestly tell you not to degrade the local church. I really love, love, love the local church. But I had more meaningful conversations with seekers and like stuck Christians in this one year than I had in the previous seven years as pastoring a church. And I think that just speaks to, if I, I may share some stats, like in Hungary, the situation is 62% of the people say they are religious, but only 11% go to church, which to me says, how I interpret it is literally half of the population mm -hmm. is open spiritually, but you will not reach them through church services. And that was a wake up call for me. <laughs> like, okay. And then my experience totally confirms that is that people are searching for God and they are searching for God online. Like that's where you look for a restaurant. That's mm -hmm. where, you know, many people are looking for spouses now yeah. <laughs> online and people are looking for God online. That's our age. And could you share some stories? I can imagine, <laughs> you have a lot of stories. I can imagine there's someone listening saying, Attila, you know, that's great for you, but I don't know if that'll work for me or if that's not real ministry. I can just imagine so many different responses. Oh yeah. Could you share some stories of how your digital ministry has made tangible impact in the local space? Yeah, very happy to. But before I do that, let me say, you, you mentioned this idea, is this real ministry? And this is a real question people have. I get it all the time. I was just reflecting on this, like recorded content always worked to advance God's mission and the work of the church. Think about the letters of Paul. Like that was a medium of the day and it was recorded content consumed by someone on the other end and lives transformed. Why is recorded content video different? So yeah, but you, you asked for stories, so let me, let me go there. So probably I will start with saying that my final baptism service that I conducted as a, as a pastor of this congregation, we baptized 12 people and eight of them signed up 
through the online ministry. And you wouldn't believe it, the stories that I heard from those people, like somebody saying that you know, they were really living a rough lifestyle, but then they got a diagnosis and they were preparing for surgery. And then they felt like, oh, maybe they should open the Bible. And they opened the Bible and they don't understand it. And they look online and they somehow stumble upon our channel. And then, you know, and then they end up getting baptized in our church or a 16-year-old girl who had a rough life or the sense of parents divorced, going through hard stuff, changing schools, all of that. And then he comes to this point where, where she wants to get baptized. And where does she look for? Like, where do you, Jason, where would you go if you would like to get baptized and you want to find out what is the good place to do that? Would you go to TikTok? I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I personally don't have a TikTok account. What? And so after we're done recording. As you, in the sense of I open it up and realize this is, I feel like this isn't my space. But yeah. what you're teaching me is actually there is space for us as millennials and I think even beyond millennials to minister on TikTok. But I, I don't want to stop you because yeah, I, yeah. I want to hear more stories. So she went on TikTok and just typed baptism in Hungarian. And because I, I've done a few videos on the topic of baptism and I've done a few videos about previous baptisms that we had, you know, the highlights, like a reel. She was like, okay, let me apply. So she applied and so I got on the phone with her and she didn't even know that the next baptism is coming up in, in a few days. <laughs> so yeah, we prepared her, we baptized her. So it's so many young and old, you know, religious background and non-religious background, anything, anything goes and the Lord can reach any, anybody. And let, let me add this about TikTok. Maybe I will convince you now to, to become a TikToker. So think about the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. It was not like a church setting in a traditional sense, like pulpit there, audience here, but it was these many different rabbis in different parts of the temple sharing what they were thinking about, what they learned about God, and then different people just walking by and maybe joining this group and that group, you know, listening in. If they don't like, they walk over to this other one. There are like some real committed disciples. There are some seekers. There are some, you know, whatever. I kind of feel like TikTok is like that setting. Like so many content creators sharing things about God and the Bible and faith and people are scrolling and then returning and then some following and then some commenting. It's really that kind of a setting and it works. You know, as you were talking about the, the stories of baptism, I baptized one girl who was watching, well, she's now a young adult, she was watching occult videos. So she was watching witchcraft videos on YouTube. And the very next video was a Christian speaking about what it means to be watching those kind of videos. And he gave an altar call and she gave her life to Christ and I baptized her. I, I baptized another girl um, who was also now a young adult. So these are Gen Z's. She happened to stumble across a Billy Graham video and he was preaching the gospel and right there in her bedroom, she gave her life to Christ. So there's this beautiful space of digital ministry meeting real life people. We, Coming to a close of our time together, but I would love to hear, do you have any other stories that you feel might inspire us? Yeah, I mean, maybe I would like to then use that to encourage pastors because I realize I personally have friends who've left the ministry, grew really tired, burnt out, burned by the people. It's not, not a nice thing to say, but, you know, leading people is not the easiest thing. And I had this guy who was a childhood friend of my parents, He's my mother's generation, but he very early stopped going to church because he was so 
put off by the hypocrisy, what he thought it was hypocrisy and how he experienced church. And then he married and divorced, married the same person and divorced. Again, didn't work out. And then when we started these Bible studies, he came kind of like giving just a little chance to this whole thing. But he saw me grow up as like a young, young kid. And he was like, you yeah, know, what can he say? But then he, he sticked around and eventually came to faith, married the same person for the third time. I married them. Some people said that was the riskiest move on my part you know, to, <laughs> to take this on. And now he's there every Sunday, sacrificing his life for ministry, putting his all in. I'm just keep being amazed about the transforming power of the gospel when people really get it not just into their heads, but their hearts. Before we wrap up, you've had the unique opportunity to have a foot in two different worlds. You've had a foot in the local church in Hungary, and you've had a foot in a space of leadership within the Lausanne movement, which is a global network of mission leaders and church leaders. I would love to hear your perspective on that. What do you believe church leaders, local church leaders could learn from global leaders? And in turn, what do you believe global leaders could learn from the local church leaders? Yeah, I count it as a privilege to have been able to be in both worlds. And I struggled with those questions, like how do the two connect? Let me share very personal thoughts now. I feel like we are in a situation in history or a point in history where, again, nations are becoming more self-centered, nationalism is on the rise. And what nationalism really is, when a country says that we are most important and we don't want to primarily see ourselves as part of the global humankind. And I think we've witnessed in history what that does when that happens. And I think that's true to, in a much smaller scale, to Christianity as well. Wow. Like if you, if you just focus on your church, your ministry, building your kingdom, that will be a very limiting experience. And actually, I think goes against the heart of God, who has this huge heart for the nations. And even though engaging globally is difficult, there are so many barriers, you know, lack of trust, maybe inability to travel and meet up or language barriers, time zones, whatever, you can name it. But I think it's worth the effort for every church leader. However, you lead a small group with 10 people in your church, you do a young adults ministry, you lead a church in your city, you lead a ministry reaching a, a people group that's only existing in your country you can still, and I think you should see yourself as part of the global body of Christ. I think global leaders can really learn from the local action-orientedness, mm -hmm. right? I, I really hope that even in Lausanne, it's not just people with really conceptual thoughts sitting around the table. Lausanne is full of what we call reflective practitioners who reflect on theology, think deeply theologically, but they are also doers. Like they are on the front lines of ministry. And I think that's a constant dialogue that needs to go on, is that how do we actually come up with ideas in the area of missions and theology that can be translated into the local level? And for those who are listening, maybe they're local church pastors or ministers even, or normal Christians, how can they connect into the global space? And I think perhaps as a challenge, how can those who are in the global space primarily, how can they begin to become more localized in their ministry? What I would say to that is it's really possible. 
It really starts with intentionality, somehow setting this as a goal or a desire, or even as a part of someone's weekly routine. I think it starts with educating ourselves on all things global mission. This podcast, I think, is a good way to do that. You have just started out, but more and more episodes are being uploaded. But anything else that Lausanne produces, the Lausanne Global Analysis, so many articles and videos on the website and the YouTube channel and Instagram and, and you name the channel. I think if you expose yourself to these things, your heart will become more global. It's almost like if you go out and lay down under the sun, you will get a tan. <laughs> so I would really encourage people to start engaging with material, with content that's global missional in, in its focus. The second thing that I would recommend is to somehow try build friendships. Now, for some people, this might be that they are nominated for a Lausanne gathering and they are invited and they come to a Lausanne gathering. It's usually a, a life-changing experience for people because they are for the first time exposed to a very global reality of the church and they make friendships across uh, continents and nations. But I also think it can work for anybody. Like Lausanne has a Facebook group. You know, we have uh, webinars, we have listening to the Bible together call. I think if someone's intentional and is reaching out and trying to get in touch with people, you can build friendships globally. Honestly, I really believe that in maybe 10 years time, the language barrier won't, won't even be there. If you look at where technology is, I think in 10 years time, I can go out here on the streets of Ethiopia if I'm here again and talk to anyone in Hungarian, they will hear me in Amharic through like headphones or whatever technology. So yeah, I think it's worth the effort to build friendships. And for those in the global scene, what would you suggest for them to get localized? Thank you for asking that question, because actually, as I was preparing for this interview, I, I had this thought in my mind. What I, I love about so many on the Lausanne staff as well, and that's definitely true to our many volunteer leaders, is that most people have one feet in, in this world and one foot in, in that. So somebody on our executive team is looking after development, but he's also leading a Bible class in his local church. I'm afraid or I'm worried or getting nervous when I see people only being involved in the global scene. I think we need to work hard on uh, having also a strong presence in the local church and really stay committed to the local church. And again, that's not easy either because the local church is messy. But that's where life happens. Yeah, and I think just to encourage those who are listening to simply go to your local church pastor and say, how can I serve you without coming with recommendations of how you can serve them or what they could do better <laughs> within their ministries? That could be a good place to start as well. Yeah, and if you're talking about pastors, I think it's also good to add that in the same time, many high caliber people who have think missional strategy, highly educated, and they go to the local church and maybe they are asked to set up chairs and they gladly do that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not about them. But I would say to the local church pastor, tap into the potential of these globally minded leaders because they can take the missional thinking in your church and like overall strategic thinking in your church to the next level. It's a little with that final thoughts that I think we can all leave with and meditate on. I want to thank you for your time, for adding value to all of those who are listening, all those who are viewing. How can people who are interested in what you're doing on TikTok follow you? 
is there any place someone can get hold of you if they want to connect with you on a personal basis? So this is where it gets challenging because all my content is in Hungarian. So unless you speak Hungarian or have the gift of interpretation, I don't know how much value is this adding to you. Although Instagram does have like an auto translate function. So I would recommend to just look at my Instagram or TikTok, type my name in the search and I will come up. For the Lausanne front, I'm on the website and people can find me and, and reach out to me. Happy to engage. Wonderful. Attila, thank you for your time. Truly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, I hope that you enjoyed today's interview with Attila as much as I did. If you found value from today's podcast, won't you take a moment to give us a rating and review and share it with a friend? Next week, we'll be back with another interview that we hope will inspire and equip you to accelerate mission within your own context. Until next week, cheers. Mm-hmm.